like design is very popular at the moment yeah. and I think we should we have an opportunity to use that for, for, for good not just to make ourselves uh, monopolistic manufacturers manufacturers of products that people buy <laughs> yeah Welcome to the first episode of Deconstruct Podcast, where I interview creative people about their work process. My name is Are Martinson, and I'm a partner in Use Studio in Aarhus. Nils Wiebe is an interaction designer working at the Icelandic exhibition design agency Kakarin, who have become known for their award-winning interactive exhibitions around the world. The work often centers around nature, culture and history, and they are known for experimenting with new ways of telling stories. Nils and I met in a cafe in downtown Reykjavik, which is why the sound is a little bit weird. I hope you enjoy. I'm Nils Wiberg. And I'm an interaction designer at Gagarin. Uh, Nils, can you tell me a little bit about your background? How, like, where you come from, and, and how you you came to uh, to work for Gagarin in Reykjavik? I'm uh, from the north of Sweden, and I studied first uh, cognitive science with the direction of uh, philosophy, philosophy of mind. So I did a master in interaction design in Umeå University in in Sweden. And in that master, I uh, took the last six months, which was a, a master's thesis project, and I did that as a project in Gagarin in Iceland, because I thought it at the time was the most exciting place to do interaction design at all, and the most uh, interesting application of interaction design. I thought that this was a perfect application of my skills, because being an interaction designer, you get a lot of practice into designing for new technologies. But in fact, what you, what a lot of those people end up doing is like working on one technology. You get a job in a company that makes telephones or radio clocks or something, and then you become really good at that. Mm-hmm. But what I really enjoyed was this. Yeah, in the study period, we got to experiment with a lot of technologies and see how we can apply them and how we can make them more human. Mm-hmm. And that was something I really enjoyed. And I also didn't really want to work in consumer technology. Mm-hmm. But how, how, how do you use your background in your study of philosophy of mind and, and how does kind of interaction design build upon that? So the reason I, I came to that study to begin with was there's a, a university in Sweden in a city where they make the, the fighter jets and the fighter jets kept crashing so they needed somebody to fix that. And then they studied it and it turns out there was nothing wrong with the fighter jet but there was just too much information for the pilot to be able to understand what was happening. So they needed a sort of social science or humanities psychologists, philosophers to figure out how much beeping could happen at the same time. And that was cognitive science. And from that sort of, before interaction design was even a thing that existed for maybe for the last 25 years or mm-hmm. even 30. It used to be called human factors, I think. When, when they blamed it all on the, on the humans, it was called human factors, but then... <laughs> I sort of realized it's rather the designer's fault if the human doesn't understand what's happening. Mm. And that was a really interesting field. You learn a lot about like psychology, neuro- neuroscience and all these things to understand how humans react to each other and to language and to technology and to imagery. A very strong foundation in that. And then instead of taking the computer route, which you can do, uh, learn to 
program things and uh, learn to program computers to speak languages, for example. Mm-hmm. I took the philosophy route because I thought there was something a little bit missing in this, how to think about what this technology is and what it does to people and what people expect from it. And that is, has turned out to be one of the things I use the most in my practice, actually. Uh, especially with regards to interaction design in general, but also to the, the job that Gagarin does in terms of creating an exhibition and interpreting the subject into it. In 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 what way do you use that directly? Can you come with some kind of example? Let's say we're interpreting a topic that's very complicated, and uh, we're making that understandable for people or we're making that thinkable for people. Then you have to apply some sort of knowledge of how people work and what your theory of how people will respond to what you're saying, much like you do in interaction design. But in interaction design, it's sort of on the micro level. Mm-hmm. In interaction design, it's you want the person to be able to change the song on the on the radio so and it's, it's, to achieve that. So it's like very specific. Yeah, it's very specific what they call tasks and uh, goals and things like that. But if you're going to extrapolate that to sort of the macro scale, how do you make people think about global warming? You have to think much, much wider and you have to mo- know much, much more about the human mind and the human consciousness and the, the rest of the human who who's like not just the one that's there in the exhibition, but also the one that goes back from the exhibition and thinks about it and talks to other people about it. Mm-hmm. And then it's much more about creating an experience that states something that the the person can add to his previous experience or his future experience and maybe it's more about changing people's perspective of something of an issue rather than feeding them information for example to create a surprising uh, perspective but to give you like one example we give we did an exhibition about global warming and its effect on seabirds on the west coast of norway Mm-hmm. And this was in sort of peak climate change era, 2009-10. And uh, there was a lot of what you might see as sort of state propaganda, especially in Scandinavia, of uh, like global warming is bad and you're at fault and you should sort your rubbish so that we can get rid of it. And uh, this exhibition was you know, funded by the Norwegian government and everything, and, but we didn't really want to go into that. And we didn't really want to use scare tax- tactics and we didn't really want to, you know, force people on specifically this like micro behavioral change level. We wanted them to start thinking about this in a long term perspective. We wanted to talk about this problem over geologic time, which is, you know, this change is happening very rapidly and it's happening on a scale that's unprecedented if you look at it from a time perspective. Because we had four, five times that species got extinct before. But that all happened over the period of hundreds of thousands of years, whereas now it's going to happen in hundreds of years, mm-hmm. which is completely different. And so we tried to take take this approach, and we said, okay, nature has been through this before. It's adapted by eliminating all the species that didn't adapt, and it's going to adapt again. Do you care about that? Sort of. That was our approach, which was very unusual and very simple yet complex. But it won the competition, and it became a really interesting exhibition. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and th- there was used a lot of philosophical concepts to get people to, you know, to not estrange the people who might not be pro 
global warming anti-messaging to begin with, mm-hmm. but to sort of invite them in, explain the problem on a, just a scientific level, and then to move it over to, like, the moral question would be theirs to answer. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of giving people a choice to reflect on, yeah. on the issue. But we're not giving them a choice to reflect on the facts. Yeah. So we're just stating how things happen on a <coughs> sort of a evolutionary scale and a geological scale, explaining all of that, and then we're saying, okay, this when this happened before, this happened. Like the dinosaurs got killed, some birds and some mammals survived, and it was a huge event. That's probably going to happen again. Yeah. Every, the whole world as we see it is going to get changed and it's going to be turned into something else. How do you feel about that? Yeah. And we didn't really address, you know, the truth of the specific increase of the water levels with 20 centimeters or 80 centimeters or something yeah. like that. Because that's a contentious issue and it might be wrong. And if it turns out in like five years that you were wrong, then people can say you were wrong. Yeah. And we didn't want to be there. We wanted to make a sustainable exhibition yeah about a sustainable issue and would you say that that you kind of work were of, of obviously you work with empathy mm-hmm. and I think everything you do is being used directly by the users by the, the kind of consumers of the exhibitions or the mm-hmm. experiences you make and I guess that's also where the social sciences also play in or, or kind of the, the background there uh, do you have kind of shortcuts to make it easier for designers to, to create uh, feelings that kind of matter to them? Yeah, yeah. I think that is what I'm asking. Yeah. So on the first point, empathy is maybe the most important quality in any interaction designer, I think. And especially if you work in this field where you're interpreting big, uh, important issues. Because not only do you have, have to empathize with... I mean, it's easy to have empathize for the people you already agree with, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's much more difficult to try to have empathy for people who might not agree with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the difficult part, because you also have to address these people. Mm-hmm. And this is something I try to impress upon our younger employees and uh, interns and things like this, that, that that's, the, that's the thing you have to focus on. I think a lot of the people coming out of school has been practicing some sort of social you know, aspects of their design work. But it's usually, as is natural when you're doing design, it's usually something that's at the heart of them, like because they get to choose the, their projects themselves. Yeah. So they end up doing something that, okay, I'm, I'm really interested in this group of people mm-hmm. and I want to address their struggles, mm-hmm. which is, of course, very good practice. But when you end up in, <coughs> in the, uh, the work life, you end up doing things for people you might not know anything about or care very much about. Mm-hmm. And then you have to tell people who drive cars to work that how about taking a bus? And then you have to talk to them like like people who have never taken a bus. Yeah. And that's a completely different thing and a completely different kind of empathy. Yeah. And this I work a lot with. And with, with regards to the second question, the shortcuts or the technologies of, uh, of experience rather, they actually, I borrow it a lot from... Before I studied cognitive science, I studied film for like a year mm-hmm. and learned a lot about different ways uh, that film affect people and uh, tell stories and develop narratives and things like that. And <clears throat> one of the things we use the most, I think, especially in terms of like environment and uh, similar issues is like catharsis. 
we put people in a position where they affect an interactive installation. Mm-hmm. I can give you an example so it's a bit, bit more clear. There was We did an exhibition about Norwegian wild reindeer who were living in Hardangevidda in the, the center of Norway, like between Oslo and Bergen, basically, in a big area. And they are threatened by human developments, but not in a way that you would think is like visible to us. Not in the way that like rubbish heaps are piling up and uh, you know subway trains are running them over or something like that. It's way more subtle in a way that we can't really understand. So you have to get the empathy of people to empathize with reindeer. And we constructed it in such a way that uh, we got people to see to like do this thought experiment, and they got to increase factors basically. Uh, we build more summer cabins, we build more train tracks, we build more skiing tracks, and we build more roads to get to our summer cabins. What will happen to the reindeer? And then we show the area of the reindeer where they feel comfortable roaming. So once you've put all of these at the max. So you had kind of dials. Yeah, we had quite literally dials. And then you turned them up, and then you saw how little this area became. And then at the end of the experience, we told people, well, actually, this is not like a future scenario. This is what has already been built. Like the max of yeah. everything. The max of everything was actually the current state of things. And then, yeah. because we sequenced the exhibit kind of like that, that's a little bit of a narrative trick you know, that, that we used to... Uh, you know, in the beginning obfuscating what this installation was a little bit about mm-hmm. and then at the end telling them, okay, this is actually what the current state we're at. Mm-hmm. So the next time you think about bi- building a summer cabin, which all Norwegians think about all the time, <laughs> it's like the only thing they think about when they're not skiing, yeah. <laughs> think about this. And that was a very like challenging exhibit to make as well because it had to address both Speaking of empathy, it had to address both the people who are willing to protect the reindeer and the hunters of reindeer who are, paradoxically, a big part of protecting the reindeer. Yeah. Uh, because they want to hunt it and they want to protect it. But, you know, they're outdoorsmen who want to be in nature and all that. But both of these people have complicated consequences for the reindeer. And we had to speak to both of those groups. So it was a, a an interesting but challenging task to speak to both of them at the same time. So so could you say that you that you put the your audience or your users uh, into the narratives you construct? Yeah. A, a little bit. We put them in the in the role of the subject. Yeah. In the in this particular case. Yeah. But not really with them knowing it. So uh, in the this in the the seabird ex- exhibition that I mentioned before, then we put people very much in the Like the first installation was called Be the Bird, and you were supposed to, like, yeah, you became a bird uh, through the wonders of technology. And then you went through the exhibition seeing what it's like to to be a bird, and then it peaked on some sort of oil spill. And uh, you got to extrapolate what the future might be when you when you have to move all the way to Svalbard to get the, the current climate of Bergen. But yeah. whereas in this ex- exhibition, we sort of made people to be the bad guy, even yeah. though they didn't before know that that was what they were going to do. So it was just a regular installation, which you might think is about numbers and facts and diagrams because it looked like that. But then it turned out it was like, ah, turns out that we did all of this because I want to go skiing. <laughs> so you so you turn people from passive to active. Yeah. It's like that Agatha Christie novel where it turns out the narrator is the murderer. Yeah, exactly. 
So do you like do you talk and work with this very specifically with like you know the kind of narrative arcs like this very basic uh, study of just stories and, and, and yeah. narrative? I I would say that that's where I wouldn't say that most of the work, but most of my work. I mean, we're a twenty people company. A lot of them program and do things like that um, and graphic design, of course. But most of my work as an interaction designer is not necessarily in, you know, is this thing blinking when I push this button? <clears throat> it's more like, what should the emotional experience be and how do I create that mo- emotional experience and why? Mm-hmm. So all the way, like from the thing that blinks, before something blinks, I think about what the, what the experience and the emotions I want to create. And before that, I think about why I want to create those emotions. Yeah. And before that, I think about the whole story of the exhibition, exhibition, mm-hmm. and uh, what it should be about. Uh, the term interpretive planning, mm-hmm. which is, uh, is is it a tool you've developed, or, or is it kind of like a like a, an unknown thing inside interaction design? It's a known thing in exhibition design. In exhibition design, yeah. Okay, can you maybe explain it? Yeah. So it's uh, the interpretive part. That's like what story are you telling? So let's say you're talking about glaciers mm-hmm. and uh, you're explaining glaciers to people. You need to sort of have an interpretive explanation of what that is. So how are you talking about glaciers? Is, the, is it just the glaciers you see uh, here and now? Or is the history of glaciers? Or is it the uh, effect on, of glaciers on humans? Or is it the effect of glaciers on non-humans? That's the interpretive part. And then you can develop that all the way to a story arc and a narrative. And then the planning is like how you put that in space, basically, with the different installations and how the flow of the exhibition looks. So it is related to exhibition design, and uh, I think it stems from the from the art exhibition world yeah. to begin with. That like okay, we have been showing the Mona Lisa now for so many years. We need a new sort of take on it, and then they put it next to another portrait, and then that yeah. juxtaposition creates something new in the minds of the of the visitor. Yeah. Or you you select a number of art pieces and they together create a, create a bigger you know reflection on the future or the pe- present or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm basically very interested in like the the systems you kind of use mm-hmm. to to make the decisions because you you can feel like kind of a red thread in a lot of what you do. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of interested in yeah the the underlying structures. Yeah, we 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 use a lot of tools like tools like that like the the narratives i was talking about we often make those like visual where we say okay here it uh, the narrative peaks and here it goes down mm-hmm. and we also make experience uh, journey or whatever you want to call it where we talk about how the visitor should uh, be responding to something or almost always we make a sort of uh, structure of seeing of, of explaining like how should the visitor like what what pieces of information should the visitor pick up on the way so that they can get the big picture at the end and i think that's uh, how we usually think about it so we like mm-hmm. we've been working a lot recently with like shifting of perspectives this is like a philosophical movement that's been brewing the last like seven eight years coming from speculative realism and object-oriented ontology to try to look at specifically 
these new digital and uh, environmental systems as bigger than just from the human perspective. Mm-hmm. Try to give visitors the sense of what it's like to be a bird, what it's like to be a mountain, mm-hmm. what it's like to be a glacier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that all stems from the from the interpretive beginning of the exhibition. Like, how do we want to? What kind of perspectives do we want to show the visitor in this exhibition? And then, what do those perspectives add up to? Mm-hmm. And that might be. Like the the adding up might add up to well the world is complicated, and very difficult, and much more difficult than you thought. Yeah, and that might be the case in terms of like glaciers because they seem you know simple, <laughs> big, like they're never going to change. But actually, they have changed a lot, and when they change, that has a huge impact on people and animals and plants and uh, uh, geothermal activity. In the in the in the geology of the where they used to be, and it has effect on climate, and it has all these effects that you don't immediately see. So we want to open people's eyes to that. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, in terms of your your team, how it is uh, put together, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm very interested in kind of uh, you know, cross disciplinarity mm. and the kind of two two versions of cross disciplinarity that are even further, like interdisciplinarity and even transdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm where where uh, especially transdisciplinarity is about kind of people from different fields creating a common platform for creating something new hmm. where, where everyone works uh, with their background but not necessarily with their kind of field and yeah. and, and i see gagarin as, as kind of uh, kind of being a very good example of kind of getting higher up that ladder hmm. another benefit of being in scandinavia that I mean, I went to two universities that have this approach, mm-hmm. like ingrained in what we do. I had to go from one lecture in the computer science department to one in the social science department and then back to the philosophy department or something. So uh, a lot of us in who work in, in Gagarin have education from Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Iceland. You know, it comes a bit natural to us to sort of dip your feet into something that's not your... Uh, your main training however you do have training in talking languages that you don't necessarily that aren't native to you mm-hmm. and uh, yeah we have everybody working on the concepts and even though a few people are responsible for them being delivered there has been concepts made that i have not even been involved in mm-hmm. you know just like tangentially when there's some technical thing of a flow chart for the interaction or something i do that mm-hmm. but otherwise i can uh, you know trust people to to develop ideas and concepts and even narratives that I'm not involved in. And it's more about trying to set the goals of this project and set the tone of the project or something like that. And it is it is something that needs to be thought of all the way from the the owner of the company basically that has to say, okay, we work like this, otherwise it it will never really happen, I think. Mm-hmm. It's why it's not happening in America, because it doesn't seem practical. To have programmers thinking about concepts, you know, they yeah. th- they should be programming. Yeah. But we don't always think of it like that because we think when when the programmer is programming, it's much better if the programmer is invested in the idea that it, the programmer is programming. Yeah. It solves a lot of problems. It makes a lot of meetings unnecessary further on in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, because a lot of our exhibitions are the final touches, or a lot of the design happens. In a way that, like, yeah, we built this this lava museum the last summer, and it was made on site 
all of the installations because it's Iceland, so we didn't build the installations in our office and then move them. Mm-hmm. So it was built like a couple of hours from here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the final touches were made out there by the people assembling it, mm-hmm. basically. And the interaction designers couldn't be there all the time. Mm-hmm. But they had a such a good understanding of what it was that this was supposed to achieve mm-hmm. so that they did an extremely good job in achieving it. Yeah. And also in ways that we did not intend. Yeah, we want to ex- create this experience and by do, to do that we make this blink. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out you can't make that blink because it interferes with something. Mm-hmm. They have to do something else. But they know what we want to achieve mm-hmm. because they know what the goal of the exhibit and the experience and the yeah. exhibition is. So they make something else that does the same thing and maybe even better. In this yeah. case, it did it even better. So that is an, an obvious benefit of this kind of approach. I think I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about ethics. I, I think we've been talking about it mm-hmm. uh, kind of through this talk, but do you, do you think it's important to have this kind of ethical charter inside organizations? And is it something that you have <coughs> inside gardening or, or, or maybe in your personal life even? Mm-hmm. In my personal life, I have a lot of ethical charters. <laughs> but maybe I should talk about the professional ones, and they are, I think, of increasing importance. Especially in Iceland, it's been easy to turn your eye away from like the extent of where what consequences the things you do have. Whereas now, when the world is getting more and more globalized, it's it's very important to to think about that. And in terms of a charter, yes, we are actually developing a charter in Gagarin, which is also a transdisciplinary work of uh, everybody have gotten together and done workshops, and then we have a smaller team of people who are taking that further. And they seem to be doing a, a very good job. That being said, it's not easy. Like, for example, I, as an interaction designer, have gone on trips to see where the things that interaction designers make sort of come from. Mm-hmm. I've gone to Madagascar to see where the mines that dig up the nickel that makes the batteries for the phones that I'm supposed to be programming apps for come from and the consequences that have. Mm-hmm which has led me to not buy a new phone mm-hmm. since 2002 or something. And I think this is very important. I mean, architects have to think about where the concrete comes from, I think. You can no longer just say, well, this was what was available at the price. But I think it's, yeah. this is becoming more and more necessary. And I think architects are quite a lot more, know, they know a lot more that this is something that you have to do. And not just as a greenwashing, but as a sort of foundational idea of your practice that, you know, you have to do something that is beneficial to, to people, to the environment, to, to non-humans, to uh, ducks in the pond. You have to think about all these things when you, when you build a new um, city hall. Yeah. That the ducks in the pond don't get displaced by your new fancy city hall. Yeah. And they seem to be liking it here in Reykjavik. <laughs> But all, all, for example, now they, they put up a sign that you shouldn't feed the duck's bread. I, I can see several people feeding the duck's bread. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's, a, that's a new uh, empathy. Yeah. That's like, we were getting more and more empathy, which is always good. And now we thought about, okay, we have all these tourists giving people bread, and there's so many tourists in Iceland, it has even consequences for the, for the ducks in the pond, yeah. because all these tourists are used to giving the bread, and they shouldn't be eating it, and this now we have to think about which has some sort of relation to, you know, bigger systems of tourism and city planning and, and uh, all of these things that people designed, but they didn't think about that. I also feel that this is kind of a growing thing that creative people are aware of or mm-hmm. should be aware of. 
and the, the consequences of what they do. But I also think that you know there is like sustainability in the fields of like materials, which also mentioned. But I think there is also this kind of social uh, sustainability. You now, for example, mentioned like you know placement. Like, yeah. is what you're working on displacing something else? Is uh, like, are you uh, are you part of a gentrification strategy? For example, if you're building something in a, in a city, mm. there are so many layers of this onion, and we're I think we're only beginning to see how many layers there actually are. And that's why I also think it's very important to, at least for me, to to go back to philosophical concepts and the developments that is actually happening and happening in in that field, in terms of ethics of how you should think about you know, global warming. Because there used to be an idea that, for example, rubbish, as long as I sorted it in seven ways, it's no longer my problem. Mm-hmm. But now it sort of turns out that there is no over there that's not here, you know? Yeah. Because even though it's no longer in the, the rubbish heap, it's being shipped to Sweden by boat and there it's being burnt. Yeah. And then you create factories in Sweden who make their living burning plastic and they want to basically create more business for themselves so they want to burn more plastic. Yeah. And now they run out of plastic. So yeah. now they're burning H&M clothes yeah. that didn't sell. So will there now be a business in creating more H&M clothes that didn't sell? Yeah. Because the city of Westeros is being heated by it. Yeah. You know, all of these increasingly international systems are sort of interlinked. And uh, Yeah, so you uh, are you saying that kind of uh, globalization itself makes this more important? Yeah, definitely. Globalization itself is has for a long time been like the consequences of my new iPhone isn't here. The environmental consequences. It's in in Inner Mongolia in China. It's in Madagascar. It's in uh, displacement of people in these very far away places. It's in Foxconn in uh, in China. At least within the design community, this is now a known fact. And then our job is sort of to translate this to the, the experiences and the buildings and the cities and the products that we make to sort of get it all the way to the, to the, to the tax-paying, hard-working people who are busy with other stuff. But uh, yeah. we cannot sit here and complain that people aren't paying attention to the fact that you know, people are drinking water out of bottles. Somebody's putting them, those bottles there. And we have a practical system of those bottles being produced. And we as designers should then intervene in that in that process and try to come up with different ways of doing it or come up with ways of making people aware of it. Yeah. And that's, I think, more and more like the role of the designer to be, in, to be intervening. I was in a workshop like eight, nine years ago with uh, James Auger, at, who was then in the RCA, but now is in Madeira teaching uh, product design and he's a product designer and his like the first thing he said in the workshop was like we can't be putting more crap in the world Mm -hmm. which is an interesting approach for somebody teaching product design Mm -hmm. but it's now the main approach of the product design department in Icelandic Academy of the Arts and also being spread all the way like outside of the product design to the whole uh, masters of design department and they're not working on putting more crap in the world. They're working on intervening into existing systems or revealing these systems to people or making these systems more transparent or even making them smaller and more local. And I think this is a really interesting turn in design. And, it, and, and I think it's down to a philosophical 
approach that has that has shifted along the lines of what I've been talking about previously. Even interaction design, who you might think is, I mean, we don't deal with plastic and pro products and stuff. We just make apps or interfaces. Yeah, but you, all those interfaces are dependent on huge server farms and batteries. And uh, the fact that we make great iPhones make people buy more of them and that has consequences. Mm -hmm. So can we make these sort of production cycle smaller? Can we think of ways that people don't have to buy a new one every six months? Can we think of ways that, you know, you can solve this problem in a different way or is this even a problem that needs solving? As a designer on a personal level, you have to start doubting the, the necessity of putting humans and their, you know, micro behavioral wants and needs at the center. And you have to think outside yeah. of that. Because if, you, if you're an interaction designer and you study human-centered design or something similar, that's all you think about. To Like the, the human has a goal, he wants to get that achieved. Yeah. But the next step is to think about like, okay, what, what consequences does that have? They had this bank had gone through the, the customer journey or whatever it's called. And they had created an app where people can now take a loan in three minutes. And this was presented to a room full of designers and all of them was like, this is the worst idea ever. Yeah. <laughs> like three minute loans, what could possibly go wrong? Well, everything. Yeah. I think it's, I think it is definitely twofold that you, you, like we both have to talk to the young designers who are in schools now and people who are thinking about going this way and, and kind of influencing the structure of the education, creative education system towards uh, thinking about these things, but also I think um, how like how do we convince uh, people in power and and kind of powerful institutions and companies to um, to not only think about this but also to kind of uh, let creative people think mm. about this for them and and to kind of change the 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 kind of age old perception that designers create stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, very much up to the, the educational institutions to start somewhere there to uh, teach designers that you don't have to create stuff, you can create interventions, and also the systems that you can intervene in doesn't have to be the production system of bananas. It can be the political system. I was just in a workshop yesterday with some uh, French design, speculative design fiction creators who Speculative design and design fiction used to be a part of the beginning of all this movement where they created fictional designs that were never intended to be uh, made real, but to make people think about, for example, technologies or synthetic biology or genetically modified things mm -hmm. and has now spread and evolved into, like, for example, interventions or uh, working with political students mm -hmm. to think about the consequences of... Uh, ideas in politics, for example. How can you intervene in the political practice and development? Mm -hmm. And how can you make these political systems, if you view them in the same way as a production cycle, mm -hmm. how can you intervene in that? Uh, all the way to, you know, city planning, to architecture, to bus routes, uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, ask, like, the, try to get these uh, company owners and political people to ask themselves questions that they may be afraid of asking in the comfortable space of a fiction or a narrative or a, a utopian idea or a dystopian idea. 
to sort of ask why are we having cars in downtown Reykjavik at all? Yeah. Is it just the fault of people who want to drive cars? Probably not. It's the fault of the fact that people have been told that they should be driving cars and that's the only way they can really get here. Mm-hmm. And the whole city is so sprawled and so big that it's I think it's bigger than Barcelona, Reykjavik. Yeah. In size. The same size as Paris at least. Yeah. Yeah. But it has, you know, the, the less people than Marais of Paris. Yeah. And they all, you know, walk everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and we walk nowhere. That's a problem. And I discussed this with people in power and city planners and architects and uh, mayors mm-hmm. that you know you can do something you can intervene in this system you can build a, a new mode of transportation you can ban cars here you can do a lot of things mm-hmm. and uh, it's sort of our job to think those thoughts that politicians can't just you know because they are a different species as well they, they, they need to go to design fiction class and they have to start thinking unthinkable things and uh, I think there may be especially here in in Scandinavia but also especially in Iceland because it's so small we can do a lot of things that can't really be tested elsewhere mm. but is it is it the role of us as creative people to open society's eyes to these things I think so I think so we we have the luxury to afford to think about these things and then I think it's It's our job to... It used to be our job to be sort of the, in the French sense, the avant-garde who think about these things on our, with our red wine and the art gallery openings and uh, complain. But I think th- those those days are a little bit gone, where you can just complain in a closed circuit. I think now we have to start thinking about how we can actually operatively influence people in this in certain directions. Counter to everybody else, I've gotten a little bit more hopeful in the the possibilities of political change because of globalization and the shrinking society. So like the things we used to only talk about in design circuits, that was impossible to get anybody else to think about. Sustainability, for example. Yeah, sustainability or like uh, system intervention or things like that. Mm -hmm. That used to be sort of an elite discussion. But now because of probably because of the Internet and because people are liking things on the Instagram that, uh, you know, yeah, this fictional future where cars drive with themselves that's kind of cool can't we get that like now and uh, <laughs> i don't know uh, politicians uh, know that people know that this uh, this is out there and they're disappointed why they don't achieve it yeah and things tend to happen i mean the general data protection act in in europe happened yeah before cambridge analytica became apparent this was like boring brussels bureaucrats working on this for years And they just decided that, no, you can't harvest our data in this way. You have to now do this and this and this. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's actually happening. Yeah, and, and, and that's a good example of, like, it seems the rest of the world is kind of, you know, they know that they are behind on this now. Yeah. So do, so you, you're saying that, like, the spread of the internet and the in, uh, interconnectedness of the world is bringing about change because you can see change happening in small places very easily. Yeah, and you can you can you can get exposed to ideas that you were were never really in the position of being exposed to before. Unless you were in one of these elite schools uh, studying this, mm-hmm. you couldn't really see this. But now you can see like there's I can't remember his name unfortunately, but you can probably put a link to it. There's an Icelandic designer at the bachelor program who made a, a bottle that was not made out of plastic but made out of algae or something mm-hmm. and it's not real it's just a speculation mm-hmm. but it got huge on the internet mm-hmm. and started kind of a discussion of 
why isn't this real? You know, mm-hmm. and he just made one prototype. He had one idea, and he took some nice pictures of it, and it be- became huge. Yeah. But now people are asking their Coca-Cola, "Why aren't you doing this?" Yeah. So that's a way that you can actually influence things with, you know, little to no money and uh, and uh, just connectedness. Yeah. And that's a great example of what design is able to do through its reach and its popularity. In fact. So, like, design is very popular at the moment, yeah. and I think we should—we have an opportunity to use that for 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 good, not just to make ourselves uh, monopolistic manufacturers manufacturers of products that people buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and becoming thinking roots in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a super nice way to tie this up, actually. Yeah, <laughs> some very nice soundbite here too. Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, and I'm really looking forward to follow uh, the work of Gagarin mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Deconstruct podcast this is the first episode and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did deconstruct is supported by orhus municipality cultural fund Kulturudviklingspulien, and a warm thank you goes out to andrew davidson from akurata who has kindly lent me his gear and taught me how to edit sound also thank you to the use studio crew as well as matthias meilby for listening to a lot of rough drafts of this Uh, episode and giving me very helpful feedback. The theme song is by Alfred Benedict. Check out his music on SoundCloud. It's really good. If you liked what you heard, please give me a rating and review on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned for more Deconstruct episodes in the coming weeks and months. Uh, And thank you for your time and have a very good day.